Boxer Rebellion, at least from a European perspective, is the epitome of why the 19th century really didn't end until 1914. Eight foreign nations invading China is just an absurd idea to our modern imagination of the world and how it functions geopolitically. Yet, given the world order of the era, the Boxer Rebellion just seems to be a normal event. This, alongside with the sheer absurdity of the event, is what originally made me so interested in it, and which I hope um, by the end of this podcast will make you interested in the event as well. But even more important from the humor that at least I find in the event is how the Boxer Rebellion marked the death of the Qing Dynasty and more importantly, the dynastical governing structure in China as a whole, and in doing so, gave rise to modern China. So maybe I lied at the start of the podcast as well. For Europe, 1914 marked the start of the 20th century. For China, this markation point was 1900, with the start of the Boxer Rebellion. Uh, Before I can divulge into the events of the Boxer Rebellion, I'd like to provide a bit of historical context first. So, while Europeans had been interacting with China and Chinese interacting with Europe for longer than we really know, um, most notably Marco Polo, a large-scale trade and cultural exchange really didn't begin until 1770 with the Canton system, which was a way for the Qing government of China to bureaucratically manage and control European trade to China, and it gave the Europeans a way into China. It was named because of the city where it took place, Canton, which is modern-day Guangzhou. Um, This system lasted from 1770 to 1839, but ultimately um, it strained and broke under the competing tensions between the Europeans and Chinese, and especially British interests in China. Uh, The ever-free marketeering classical liberal British really chafed under the Canton system with its heavy emphasis on bureaucracy and the inherent corruption within the system. Um, But more importantly, they were concerned with the trade deficit with China and Chinese tea, which was in the process of hemorrhaging the British silver supplies, which and the tea trade was of national interest to the British as it accounted for a large portion of the government's expenditure. So the British responded to this um, trade imbalance by importing in mass opium from their Indian colonies into China, which they used to even out the trade balance. This um, obviously annoyed the Qing government, who didn't like foreign power being the largest drug dealers in human history onto their population. So they tried to ban the opium trade and destroyed the opium of British merchants in Canton, which ultimately led to a series of escalations which um, concluded in the First Opium War. So this war ended pretty poorly for the Chinese as the British for the use of industrial era military technologies and especially steamers which could go upstream while the wind wasn't with them. Um, were able to just absolutely destroy the Chinese in the First Opium War, um, which led to the signing of the Treaty of Nanjing, which was a very imbalanced treaty. It gave the British a bunch of money. Um, the island of Hong Kong opened up several treaty ports along the Chinese coast, which um, were essentially ports where Westerners could come in and then trade without really much restriction from the Chinese government. And then the final and most humiliating thing was extraterritoriality, which essentially made that British subjects in China were immune from Chinese law and could 
only be tried by British law, which in effect made them above the law while in China. So the conclusion of the Opium War really opened Pandora's box as more and more European powers, as well as the Japanese and Americans, became involved in China to the point where by 1898 each power had carved up a sphere of influence, which is a term to indicate a region of economic and political control of a foreign power within China. Um, and really, they were very heavily invested in China, which created a lot of resentment from the local Chinese, which provided the tinder for the ultimate Boxer Rebellion in 1900. As the Western powers increasingly influenced China, um, they also brought with them missionaries who began to spread Christianity within China, which would have important effects um, throughout Chinese history and especially during the Boxer Rebellion. So while Christianity was not originally imported into China with the Western powers, um, with Nestorian churches dating back to the Tang Dynasty and the 600s AD, it really didn't start to have a significant effect on China until this period. So while the religion had some initial successes and, and maybe a different timeline, would have become more integrated into Chinese society like Buddhism was. Um, it was ultimately pretty quickly discredited with the Taiping Rebellion, which was a rebellion that lasted from 1850 to 1864, led by a man named Hong Xingwen, who believed himself to be the younger brother of Jesus Christ. And um, the rebellion killed up to 30 million people, which really discredited Christianity as a foreign idea, which led to destruction within China. So the Taiping Rebellion, along with the association of Christianity with Western imperialism, really ultimately um, killed the religion in China to the point where it didn't really have any effect after this period and after the imperialist powers started to withdraw from China in the 20th century. But its final and... Um, one of the most important impacts it had was that it provided more fuel along with um, resentment against Westerners for the Boxer Rebellion as Christianity was spreading through the northern areas of China, which would ultimately host the rebellion. So while the deep-rooted issues that caused the Boxer Rebellion were discussed as Western imperialism and Christianity's influence in China, the immediate spark for rebellion was... Um, a series of droughts that hit the Shandong province in northern China, as well as the um, surrounding areas, that um, both led to a lot of suffering within the region, as well as um, left a lot of people unemployed, a problem which was further compounded by the fact that a recently built railroad had left a lot of porters in the province unemployed, which was a major source of employment within the area all of which um, eventually exploded into the Boxer Rebellion. This tension began to be released with the formation of local militia groups throughout northern China, especially Shandong, um, the most notable of which were the Boxer Militias, which was a term given to them by Europeans. Um, they practiced a form of martial arts, Tai Chi, um, but since the Europeans didn't recognize that, they just called anyone who fought barehanded boxers, therefore the name of the rebellion. Um, they mainly engaged in small-scale localized violence against Christians within the Shandong province, but um, 
during 1900, they really exploded and marched on the capital of Beijing. Now, at this point, I'd like to point out that if we followed the trend of most rebellions in Chinese history, the military would have just easily crushed this rebellion, which really just amounted to peasants who thought they could deflect bullets. But um, instead, the Qing government decided that instead of crushing it, they should support it. And in effect, supported the rebellion slogan of support the Qing, remove the foreigner, and attempted to expel every single imperialist power in China at the point, which resulted in them declaring war on them, which was the equivalent of declaring war on the entire world, which sets the stage for the uh, Boxer Rebellion and the European Invention in the summer of 1900. Now, before the uh, Qing government decided to make the monumentally stupid decision to declare war in every single country in the world, they, um, European powers really didn't care about the Boxer Rebellion. It's just a low-level peasant rebellion in Shandong province. But um, after the declaration, they immediately set about preparing forces to intervene in China and end the rebellion quite quickly. Uh, as a side note, when the administrators of central China and southern China heard about the Boxer Rebellion, they immediately told the European powers that they were not involved with it and that they um, would not fight European powers or try and kill the Christians in their territories, which is kind of important because it limited the fighting to northern China and really the organized fighting where it wasn't just suppressing rebels to the route from Taijin to Beijing. So the first um, attempt to intervene in China during the Boxer Rebellion and relieve the legations in Beijing, which were under siege by this point, was the Seymour Expedition, uh, named after its leader, who was a officer in the British Navy. And it consisted of 2,000 British soldiers, primarily from the Royal Navy, who proceeded to get demolished by both Boxer rebels who launched guerrilla tactics against them and just the standard Chinese army, which was larger and had more material. So um, they were almost destroyed, but <laughs> and then just a weird stroke of luck. They stole some boats on a river nearby and just tried to run away, whereupon they found an abandoned Qing fort, which had um, two years' worth of rice and enough ammunition and artillery to make it basically withstand any attack the Chinese attempted to launch on it, whereupon they just sat there in that fort until another expedition came to bail them out. So while the Seymour expedition was floundering and hiding in a fortress, um, in Beijing, the Qing government issued an ultimatum to the foreigners within the city to leave the city and then leave China or they would be killed by the Chinese government and the rebels. Um, most of the foreigners in Beijing refused the ultimatum and thereupon set about fortifying the foreign legation, which was an area of um, embassies and diplomatic service buildings from foreign powers in Beijing. So forces from all the major imperialist powers um, fought in the foreign legation, along with many Chinese Christians in the city who were seeking refuge from the boxers who were killing Christians. Uh, the siege lasted from June 20th to August 14th, uh, where the fighting was 
pretty intense. Uh, one of the anecdotes that illustrates this, and also one of the anecdotes which when I read upon I thought was pretty funny, was um, the area of legation defended by Japanese soldiers took 110% casualties as every soldier um, defending that area got shot at least once during the almost two-month siege and then got back into the line whereupon some were shot again and then had to be taken out. Well, it might be a more fun narrative for movies to say that the legation held out constant assault for up to two months. That's pretty questionable as to whether the extent to which the Chinese were actually trying to take the legation. Um, while the Boxer rebels were definitely trying to get in, the government forces didn't seem um, so eager as they had a lot of artillery which they didn't use and they rarely mounted all-out assaults on the legation. Um, largely due to the officers just not really obeying the upper echelons of the government. Um, fighting especially died down once the second much larger expedition arrived in China, largely due to fears of retribution of, to, um, from Chinese as to what would happen if they actually did um, take over legation and basically slaughter all the inhabitants. Um, well, ultimately, uh, heavy casualties were taken on both sides. The legations were able to hold out until the second expedition ultimately reached Beijing and was able to relieve them. So while the first expedition to attempt to relieve Beijing was an unmitigated disaster, the second expedition was much better organized and was just simply put much larger and better equipped. It consisted of the eight-nation alliance of Britain, Japan, Russia, France, Germany, Italy, the United States, and Austria-Hungary. Although most of the troops really came from Japan, Russia, and Britain, and France and the United States also provided sizable contingents with only minor um, additions from the other powers in the alliance. So the expedition began by sieging the port city of Taizhen, which for people who don't know is Beijing's unofficial port and entrance to the ocean and international trade. Um, that's actually where they took the highest casualties throughout the entire campaign. And also some foreigners were besieged there, most notably future president Herbert Hoover. Um, but after they secured the city, they used it as a base to bring in supplies and begin their campaign towards Beijing itself. Um, so the main opposition the foreigners would be facing would be three modernized um, Chinese divisions. So these had modern weaponry, um, modern tactics, and modern artillery, um, as well as irregular boxer rebels and other types of rebels who would use guerrilla-style tactics against the Westerners as they advanced towards Beijing. Um, there's actually a fourth division in the area, um, but it was led by Yuan Shikai, who if you know anything about Yuan Shikai, the following probably won't surprise you, but he just chose to totally ignore orders and just kept his forces away from the Western powers um, throughout the entirety of the campaign because he didn't want to get them destroyed. Uh, so um, one of the most famous things, which a lot of people tend to know about, if they um, know anything about the Boxer Rebellion is the 
rebels who thought that they could become immune from Western bullets and artillery by practicing martial arts. Um, so this really happened in the initial stages of a Western advance towards Beijing. Um, there are reports of rebels walking straight forward um, very slowly towards the British um, soldiers, hoping or believing that um, their martial arts would stop British bullets. Uh, it didn't. Um, although when people talk about this, it tends to get pretty overblown as after the first couple of tries doing that, they pretty quickly stopped as natural selection did its thing and um, the Boxer Rebellion started using more traditional guerrilla tactics such as ambushes. So along with the Boxer guerrillas, the Imperial forces faced um, resistance from standard Chinese troops, most notably at two different points. Um, at both locations, the foreign powers were able to successfully overwhelm the forces um, until they ultimately arrived at Beijing, where they set about making an orderly and neat plan to uh, take the city. Um, but while they made this plan, you have to remember that this is the Victorian era of European history, so National prestige matters a lot, and one of the most prestigious things you could possibly do would be take over an enemy capital. So, while they made this plan, um, they decided to sleep the night before, then launch the attack in the morning. But the Russians, um, they wanted to get to Beijing first. So they snuck out of the camp at night, tried to make it straight to Beijing. But the uh, Japanese, they saw the Russians doing this, and, and they wanted to get to Beijing first, too. So they followed the Russians. And as you can predict, this started a chain reaction where this orderly plan, which they had to take Beijing, completely fell apart as every single power was just rushing to get to the walls of Beijing first so that they could be the first one to get into Beijing and liberate the um, legations. So... This ended up with the Russians taking the Japanese position to attack Beijing, and then the Japanese taking the American position, and the Americans just throwing their hands up and just scaling the walls. And all three of these forces um, faced pretty intense resistance as they were trying to get in. But the British, who were um, one of the last ones to get into this chain of attack towards Beijing, uh, they saw all the fighting at the front, and they just decided to walk around the back. So while uh, all the other powers were fighting pretty intensely at the front line, the British really just did the equivalent of walking in the back door and uh, liberated the legations and entered Beijing with no resistance at all, which ultimately uh, ended the siege of the legations and the second expedition as a whole. So the immediate result of the Boxer Rebellion was the Boxer Protocol, which was another unequal treaty signed between imperial powers and China, which allowed for the imperial powers to prosecute and execute pro-boxer officials within the Qing government. Along with that, they also just took a bunch of money, because, you know, well, why not at that point? Um, after that, the foreign powers set about forcefully pacifying the countryside, killing boxers or anyone they suspected of being a boxer pretty indiscriminately. Um, some of the more long-term effects, at least from the perspective of European powers on China, was that um, 
the Western powers, so Germany, France, Britain, and the United States, pulled back the sphere of influence model in China in an attempt to stop the government from collapsing, while Japan and Russia, which had been less invested in mainly in China, um, both became more invested, which was a pretty um, decisive factor in the Sino and the Russo Japanese War, which would happen um, shortly after the Boxer Rebellion. Uh, but what I think is really far more important than the imperialist squabbles that resulted after the Boxer Rebellion was the long term effects that the rebellion had on China. And the, definitely the most important one is that the Boxer Rebellion essentially doomed the Qing government as a government that was opposed to any social, economic, or political change within China, and therefore a government which would need to be removed from power if China wished to modernize, which, while not immediately leading to an overthrow of the Qing government, ultimately doomed it um, through the 1911 revolution and the utter destruction of the dynastical system in China, um, which had lasted, uh, at that point, almost 4,000 years. You can see this transition in the writing of intellectuals as um, they shift away from the previous movements of the 19th century, such as the self-strengthening movement and the reform movement, to just revolutionary overthrow of government, um, most notably through Sun Yat-sen, but also through a lot of other writers. And if you really wanted to extrapolate it, you could say that this started a trend amongst Chinese um, intelligentsia of increasingly radical and radical positions, which um, ultimately culminated with the ascension of a communist government. And if you really want to stretch it out, the Cultural Revolution in the 1960s and 70s. And another um, effect which is often overlooked as the focus on from reform to revolution is a lot more discussed about is that the Boxer Rebellion directly contributed to the um, decentralization of the Qing government through exposing just how frankly incompetent the Qing government was for supporting such a stupid action um, through the Boxer Rebellion. And we can see that through the southern and central regions of China just not obeying the Qing government. And this is important as during the 1920s, um, warlords would just come to dominate China, uh, which would be critical in the formations of both the nationalist and the communist governments and their ultimate civil war from 1946 to 49 of Japanese invasion from 37 to 45. So if you had to leave the Boxer Rebellion with one impression of its major effect on history, it would be that while it certainly was not the turning point for the decline of the Qing dynasty, which occurred much earlier, um, it marks the point of no return, where really nothing the Qing dynasty does is going to preserve it for long-term survival. And through the Qing dynasty, it also marks the end of the dynastical system within China. Um, therefore, I'd say that the Boxer Rebellion really is the demarcation point of um, pre-modern China and modern China. And thus, while well, at the start of the podcast, I said that for Europe, the 20th century really didn't start until 1914. 
for China, the 20th century started in 1900 with the Boxer Rebellion and the introduction of modern China.